those of you with a Bible can turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just simply raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will give you one. Proverbs chapter 3 is where we are at today. I was uh, in Ohio last week and had a wonderful family reunion with our family there. I was able to worship with my brother's church while we were there. Missed you guys and it's good to be back. And I heard Montrell did a wonderful job last Sunday. Actually, one one member told me that uh, it was the best Sunday she's had since uh, she's been at the garden. And I thought, praise praise God. It is great. And it actually is. Uh, We have a community here of wonderful people, don't we? I love you guys, and it is good to be back with you. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3, and then I will pray and ask God to help us, and then we will dive in to these words. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves, as a father, the son in whom He delights. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You do speak to us this morning. That the Holy Spirit wakes us up to the truth that is in these words. That we, uh, that we uh, are exposed, our sinful intentions and our ideas. Anything that distracts us from You, any place uh, in which we are seeking ultimate satisfaction that can only be found in You. I pray that You reveal all of that to us today. So that we might turn fully to Christ and trust only in Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past weekend, as you might know, tens of thousands of professing Christians in Iraq were forced into the mountains, fleeing from ISIS, or what's become known as the Islamic State, forced to scurry to save their own lives. Over the past number of weeks, you may have heard stories about how Christians have been forced to either convert to Islam or pay high taxes or be executed. We've heard stories, you may have seen them on the news, Christians who have been hung on wooden stakes crucified, children who have been beheaded, parents who have been hung, thousands of deaths called by some one of the greatest humanitarian crises in the world today. Now, the question I'm asking this morning is, is as you are fleeing into the Kurdish mountains, running for 
your own life. Because of your faith, is Jesus in that moment worth it? Can you, in that moment of excruciating trial, trust God's Word? One author said that if your religion doesn't actually help you in life, then you have a bad religion. Religion is, is, should, should be useful. Is Christianity, our faith, useful for us? Can we trust God's Word not only during the times of plenty, but also during times of poverty? Now this morning, you may find yourself in one season or another. You might find yourself going through a season of plenty. Things are good for you right now. You're happy, your kids are happy, your, your job's going well, whatever, whatever your life, whatever happens in your life, it's just all on sort of cruise control. Life is good for you. And you are tempted to distrust God and to forget God and place your trust in your prosperity, in the good things that are all around you. Others of you might find yourself not in a season of plenty, but in a season of poverty or in a season of suffering. That doesn't necessarily mean financial. It could be an emotional poverty. It could be a spiritual poverty. There is a deep trial and a deep suffering in your life. And you are tempted to distrust God as you begin to resent God. You begin to grow weary of what God is doing or is not doing in your life. The question I want you to ask yourself is this, can you trust God's Word? Can we, whether we're in good times or in seasons of bad, can we trust God's Word fully? Now the Proverbs say that we can. The Proverbs says that our faith is not merely a, uh, some kind of list of, of, of rules that we just must follow, just pointless rules uh, in the sense that God might say, do this simply because I say so. All right? I use that with my kids a lot. Anybody have parents that ever use that with them? Do this. Just yesterday, I told one of my children to put my phone down. Then I, I heard the, the ever-present, why? And then my response was, because I said so. And then the question was, but why did you say so? And I said, because I'm the dad which makes no sense as to why I should put my phone down. But that's just what came out of my mouth. Listen, God never does that to us. All right? He never says, do this because I said so. That's what imperfect fathers do, not perfect fathers. God, our perfect father, doesn't say, do this because I say, say so. God says, do this because it will help you. And guys, this is what the Proverbs is all about, how our faith is actually helpful for us. God says, look, here, there are commands, like do these things, but don't do them arbitrarily because, just simply because I commanded you to do it. Do them because they will help you, God says. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons we love the Proverbs is because, as we see in this chapter, there are incentives after every command. So God gives us a command, and then there's an incentive attached to it. 
So, for instance, verse 2 in this passage is the incentive of verse 1. Verse 4 is the incentive of verse 3. 6 is the incentive for verse 5. Verse 8 is the incentive for verse 7. Verse 10 is the incentive for verse 9. This is how the Proverbs work. Here is a command, and then here is the incentive for following this command. The Proverbs say that our faith is not a useless, pie-in-the-sky kind of religion in which we must just simply follow rules. But our faith is something that no matter which season you're in, whether you're in a season of plenty or whether you're in a season of suffering, our faith is a faith that is useful and that is helpful. Why? Because God is always for you. And I want you to understand that through this series, that God is not against you, but He's for those who have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is for you. And He is for your best. He wants your happiness, not your misery. And so our call to obey comes from a God that is for us. Now, some of you with sensitive ears might say, wait a second, this, starts, this is starting to sound like the prosperity gospel. All right? You may have heard verse 1 where it says, uh, uh, oh, keep, keep the commandments of God and, and then you'll have long life and you'll have peace. Or in verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and then God will make your paths straight. He will, he will straighten out your way. Or, or maybe you saw verse 9 and 10 which says, honor the Lord with your wealth. All right? Give the first fruit of your income and then your barns will be filled with plenty your bank accounts flowing with cash, and your refrigerator stocked with new wine, right? Sounds like, some might say, the prosperity gospel. Is this the prosperity gospel? Now, that's not what my message is about, but I want to take a pause right here in our series, and I want to kind of address this question, how is this not the prosperity gospel if it's not? First of all, let me give you two thoughts. Number one, the prosperity gospel is not found anywhere in Scripture. The prosperity gospel is materialism at its finest. The prosperity gospel says that, that you are, uh, or that the, the point of the Bible is your own glory. Whereas the gospel says that the point of the Bible is the glory of not you, but God. The prosperity gospel says that when you have material things, that that's a sign of godliness. But the gospel says it's what you do with those material things that determines godliness. The prosperity gospel conveniently ignores much of Scripture. It ignores verse 12, verse 11 and 12 here. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Prosperity Gospel ignores Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about all of these saints of old who were sawn in two, limb from limb. These people who, uh, wives who received their husbands back dead. They were persecuted, they were hated, they were forced to wander and run for their lives. And the Bible calls them faithful, calls them blessed. The prosperity gospel conveniently ignores Jesus' own statement that in this world, 
you will have many trials. In this world, you will have many troubles. So how do we understand the Proverbs then in, in light of these prosperity gospel claims? Second thing, my second thought, I guess, on the prosperity gospel is this. Proverbs, and I want you to remember this, Proverbs are not promises. All right, let me qualify that statement. A promise of God is something that God will always do for you. He will always be faithful to His promises, and He will never, he, he will never fail you. All right? So, for instance, a promise of God, I will always uh, or I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise that you can trust in, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Another promise of God would be uh, all things work together for good to them who love God. You can trust in that. You can lean into that promise because God will not fail His promises. The error that prosperity teachers, preachers, a lot of churches, people that you might see on TV, the error that they make is they treat the Proverbs like promises. Do this, and God has promised to do this for you. So if you want, if you want your bank account flooded with cash, and you want your refrigerator stocked with new wine, then give the first fruits of your income. And God has promised to hook you up. So that's the error that the prosperity teachers make. They turn Proverbs into promises. Listen, Proverbs is wisdom. It is more like a dad having a conversation with you and saying, look, this is, general, this is a generalization. This is what life you, you can generally expect when you live in this way. Let me give you an, an example. If you were to tell a friend, wear your seatbelt and you will survive a car accident. Does that mean that every time you're in a car accident wearing a seatbelt, you will survive it? Well, of course not. Unfortunately, we know that people don't survive car accidents sometimes wearing their seatbelts. But we do know this, that that's a true statement in the sense that the, the, generally speaking, you put your seatbelt on and you get in a car accident, you are far more likely to survive than if you're riding with your seatbelt off. All right, does that make sense? We could say, if you want to live a long life, don't be a drug dealer, right? Or if you don't want to go to jail, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can generally apply these things and say, this is, this is what it means to live a full, happy life. So what we see here then is, is not the, uh, the, the prosperity gospel. What we do see is that God is for you his commands are for you. Being obedient to God is always your best. And what we see here is this, that we can, even those who are currently running through the mountains trying to save their lives, in whatever season you find yourself, you can trust God's Word. And God will never fail you. Let's do this. Let's just kind of look through these commands and these incentives. In verse 1, we see the first command. The command here is to not, not forget God's teaching and to, to let your heart keep, or the literal word is guard His commandments in your heart. 
the commandments of God first enter your heart before they enter your actions. In Proverbs, we see that the heart is the spring of all that you do, of all of your life, of of, of the decisions you make. It all comes from your heart. And I think it's interesting to note here that as we read this, God is not saying, "Keep keep my commandments in your brain or keep my commandments in your actions. But He says, look, let my commandments be kept and guarded in your heart. Let my commandments shape your heart and then it will shape your life. Let wisdom first enter into your heart before it comes into your brain. The incentive here, length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Listen, that word there is keep is the word guard in a sense that the, the commandments coming in and shaping your heart, guard against these false ideas of happiness that your heart loves to come up with. And when these ideas of happiness come in and you begin running after those ideas, guess what happens? You have no peace in life. You have no joy in life. Let me give you an example of this. I'll illustrate this from, a, uh, from my own testimony. When I was a youth pastor at another church, and we were making preparations to move to Baltimore and to start our work here with this church, uh, I, I remember, remember sitting in a church service, and I had this thought. My thought was, man, if I can be in Baltimore with just a, a couple like Jesus-loving people that love the city and want to serve the city, if I can get that I will be happy. I will have peace. I remember a couple years ago, after we were uh, two or three years into this, uh, this church plant, I, I had achieved that. So I had a couple people around me who loved Jesus and loved the city. We were doing life together. And it occurred to me that I have achieved what I thought would actually bring me a sense of fulfillment in life. Yet, guess, guess what? I, I still felt the same way. And I had to repent of allowing my heart to invent ideas as to where I can find ultimate satisfaction and happiness. You see, guys, your heart loves to do this. Your heart loves to just invent ideas for you and say, look, place your, place your hope into this accomplishment, this achievement, this thing. It doesn't even need to be a sin. We're not talking necessarily about outright sin issues. It could be a sin issue. But your heart loves to invent ideas of ways that you can find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. And we begin to trust our own hearts. And then guess what happens? We achieve and we find that we are still unhappy. And we still have no peace. Let the wisdom of God shape your heart so that your actions might then be shaped as well. So that your goals, your dreams, are not the things that you are placing your hope in. The second command we see here is in verse 3. It says, let not steadfast love, let not faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. That means to beautify yourself with faithfulness, 
and with steadfast love, here's the incentive, then you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. That word favor is the word repute. Meaning if you want to have a good reputation among people, if you want to find favor with God and with other people, don't worry about your body. Don't try to beautify your external. Don't try to find favor because of what you have in your house or the kind of muscles that you have on your body or the kind of clothes that you wear, etc. But beautify yourself. Wear these things around your neck, faithfulness and steadfast love. Let these things make you beautiful. In the incentive, you'll find favor. The next command, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Now, this is risky. This is risky because this, this means two things that is very challenging for us. Number one, to trust God and then obey means that we don't always agree with what we read in the Bible. All right, let me explain that. The very nature of trusting something means that you're, you're, there's a, you're not really sure. Like you read something in the Scriptures and it bristles against who you are, what you want to do, and you then just simply submit to it and you trust God. One theologian said that if we, uh, if we only obey when we agree with the Bible then it's not really obedience, but rather it's agreement. But true trust and obedience comes when we are, 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 are struck by and challenged by the truths that we find and we disagree and we, then we say, but I submit. I submit and I trust God's Word. It's challenging, isn't it? The second thing that's risky here, the second thing that's challenging is this, where it says lean not on your own understanding. What that means is, is don't just simply do what seems practical. Practicality is in some ways here set aside. What is practical is not always what is wise. The way that we can sort of understand things and then implement life is not always what will bring us health and life. It's not necessarily practical to give up a day of your week Sundays together with your church. It's not necessarily practical to give away some of your money. It's not necessarily practical to exchange your smartphone for a flip phone because you can't control your times on the internet. It's not really practical to do some of these things. But we do not lean into what is practical, but we lean into and then we trust in what God says. We trust God's Word. The incentive is that your life will make sense. Your paths will be made straight. Verse 7, we see the next command. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil or shun evil, according to some of your translations. This is simply restating what has been said. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't just do what seems right to you. But instead, run away from anything that is sinful or evil. Shun it. 
The incentive is in verse 8, will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Verse 10, we see another command. Or verse 9, I'm sorry. Honor the Lord with, with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your produce. What does this mean? Well, first it says what you should do. Honor the Lord with your wealth, or the, the literal word there is from your wealth, meaning uh, we don't do what I heard one famous preacher did, and that's to buy a massive complex of a house, sorry, a big mansion, and uh, when, when questioned about the wisdom of his multi-million dollar purchase, his response was, well, I can honor the Lord with this and, you know, maybe have people over for Sunday dinner and stuff like that, all right? That's not necessarily what we're talking about here. We don't simply buy whatever we want to buy and then find some way that we can use that to honor the Lord. But the word here is actually from your wealth, meaning take some of your wealth and use it specifically not to buy something or not to save, but use it in some way to honor the Lord. So that's what to do. How do we do that? It says, it says do that with the first fruits of your produce. This is the old concept in the Old Testament of tithing, meaning the, the first bit of our income, we take a, a tenth of that and we set it aside and we give it in a way that would honor the Lord, bring honor to the Lord. This means that, that giving, generosity, honoring the Lord comes first in your budgeting, before taxes. One of the greatest things that I'm thankful for with my own parents and the way that they brought me up was when, when I got my first job at McDonald's, I think my paycheck was like 128 bucks, something like that. And I set aside $12.80 to give to the work of God through the church and honor the Lord. So we give. We're generous with our money and we give of our first fruits. And here's the incentive. It says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now that doesn't mean that we then just hoard all of that money. That wouldn't make sense. Because remember, we are to honor the Lord with our wealth and from our wealth. Meaning this, God loves to give more to givers. God loves to give more to those who use their, their, their wealth, their finances for His honor and for His glory so that you might continue to give. I've seen this uh, just watching people in, in our church and friends of mine who are givers and they continue to receive opportunities to give more. And they're faithful in that. The old Puritan Matthew Henry, he said it like this. He said, the blessing of more should never be for hoarding or for show. But the blessing of more is always the blessing of being able to give even more. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this about trust? What do we learn from this about God and, and His faithfulness to us? Let me give you four thoughts, and we're going to close with these four thoughts. Four things I want you to remember. Four things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, trusting God, trusting God's Word is always costly. Trusting God's Word is always costly. Here we see that, that trusting God's Word means that you risk abandoning your dreams as you give them up to wisdom. 
so that wisdom might examine your dreams and the motivations behind those dreams. Trusting God's Word means that you give up sinful urges. Trusting God's Word means that you give up the superficial praise of superficial people. Trusting God's Word means that you give up your idolatry of money. And it costs you, doesn't it? Trusting God's Word means that it costs you pointless dreams. Trusting God's Word costs you superficial beauty. Trusting God's Word costs you vices. Trusting God's Word is God asking you to throw yourself completely into Him. Alright? This isn't like sitting on the chair kind of halfway, one leg on the ground, one leg in the sofa. This is completely jumping and falling into the sofa of God's faithfulness and love for you. Ray Ortland, he, he told a story of his, his grandfather who years ago had to cross a frozen lake in the middle of winter to get to the other side for some reason. So he has, has to cross this ice. And he's afraid the ice is thin, and so there he is, carefully on all fours, distributing his weight and all the members of his body to try to try to give himself as much mass as possible so the ice won't break. And he's sort of creeping out over the lake and, and he finally gets about halfway through. There he is, you know, practically lying down on all fours. And he hears some clanging behind him. And he carefully turns so the ice doesn't break. He carefully turns to see what the clanging is. And it is a sleigh being pulled by four horses just bounding across the the ice right past this man on all fours afraid that the ice is going to break. All right, you get the picture there. So many times we trust God in the same way that that man was trusting the ice, meaning not very much. We don't jump, we don't leap across God's love. It's because we don't often trust God's love. So we carefully kind of make our way out and crawl and we're not sure if this thing is going to crack and I don't know if I can give up this because it's going to cost me too much to give up. And so I kind of hang on to this because the ice might crack and I might fall through and experience what I don't want to experience. And so therefore, I don't fully abandon myself to God. I don't fully trust God. But I also hold back and I trust some other things. Trusting God might cost you a relationship. Trusting God might cost you uh, uh, various ways uh, that you have treated your singleness or your sexuality or your married life. Costing God, uh, God's Word might cost you many of the ways that you have spent your time. Trusting God's Word is costly. But friends, here's the the reality. As, As I am asking you to leap into God's faithful, like leap into His love, leap into all that God is and leave everything else behind, I understand that it costs everybody sitting in this room a, a lot But what I I want you to know is this. If you don't leap 
it will cost you a thousand times more. Ignoring God's faithfulness, not fully trusting Christ, will in the end, maybe not now, in the immediate, maybe not tomorrow, but in the end, it will cost you a thousand times more than the cost that I'm asking you to make today. Trusting God's Word is costly. We understand that. Secondly, though, trusting God's Word, and this is what I'm getting at here, trusting God's Word is always worth it. Trusting God's Word is always worth it. In verse 2, we see that word peace. That's, that's the old word shalom. That means so much more than just simply material blessings, right? Shalom is the sense of completion. Like I am complete as a person. I feel fulfilled, satisfied in God. So meaning you can be going through a season of trial, running through the, the, the mountains of suffering and find shalom as we trust in God's Word. But it's not only an internal sort of presence and peace, but there's also this external practicality to trust in God's Word. Meaning it's practically better for you to trust His Word than to not. I'll give you an example right there in verse... In verse, uh, verse 6 or verse 7, he says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Shun, turn away from evil. Then if you do, here's the incentive. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Listen, the last thing that's on your mind when you feel sick on the inside, all right, your bones feel ill. I don't mean physically. I mean, emotionally, spiritually, just in every way, your bones ache. The last thing on your mind is to shun evil. You know why? Because we believe that evil, sin, can numb us of our pain. That's the lie that sin always brings you. You can be numbed of your pain. So, so look at pornography because it will help you... Uh, numb the, the, the pain that is in your bones. But the reality is this, those of you that do give in to various sins to be numbed, you know that it actually only makes it worse, doesn't it? You find greater insecurity. You find greater pain. You find greater loneliness as a result of evil. And so then we don't trust our own thinking in those moments. We trust the Word of God and we rely in and we shun evil. And then what we find is this. We find healing in our bones. We find refreshment to the very, the very, at the very core of our being. Trusting God is always worth it. Number three, trusting God matters when you are in a season of plenty. When you are being tempted to distrust God and to trust your prosperity, to trust in the things that you have, to trust in the luxuries that you have, or to trust in your children, or to trust in your job, or to trust in your education, or your brains, or whatever it is that you have going for you. We're, we're tempted to trust in these things. Listen, in these moments, trusting God matters because you will never find happiness in these accomplishments. Secondly, or fourthly, I should say, trusting God matters when you are in seasons of poverty. 
Trusting God matters when you're in seasons of suffering. Look at verses 11 and 12. My son, he says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, when we're going through a trial, we're going through a, a season of suffering, we are tempted to despise what God is doing in our life. We're tempted to become weary of God during these seasons. Do not be tempted in these ways. Do not give in. But trust God when you're in seasons of suffering. Because suffering is proof that God loves you. Discipline, proof that God loves you as His son, as His daughter, as His child. Suffering, one person said, is the training ground for the Christian life. And suffering is the preparation for heaven. Trust God in all of life. So, what do I do? What do I do? Whether I'm in a season of good or a season of bad, how do I move through life and not lose my faith? The answer is this. It's very simple. And I've been saying it over and over and over for the last however many minutes. You trust God's Word. You trust You see, Christianity is not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is news that comes to us not from the inside, but from the outside. It's news that God has, through Christ on the cross, triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over death. He has triumphed over the grave. He has triumphed over over hell, meaning there is nothing that you have to worry about when you are trusting in God. There is nothing that you must have anxiety over when we are trusting in God. The call to the Christian, and for those of you exploring Christianity, is not to do more, but it's to trust more. Trust in God. Let trust be what is guiding your heart. Let the wisdom of God shape your heart. So your passions then might be shaped. And trust Him. Trust Him how? Trust Him moment by moment. This isn't a one-time trust. This isn't something where I trusted Jesus one time in the past. I'm talking about a, a daily trust. I'm talking about an hourly trust. I'm talking by a minute by minute trust. And oftentimes, guys, I'm even talking about a second by second trust. Meaning you are faced in this moment with distrusting God and in every moment of every day of every month of every year you are called to trust God. Trust God when it seems more practical to hoard your money. Trust God when you're considering throwing away your reputation and jumping into bed with that man. Trust God when you are tempted to turn away from God forever. Trust Him in the big things in life. Trust Him in the mundane things of life. Trust in the Lord. And what you will find is that the ice is thick. And you can fall into His faithfulness and into His grace 
and it's worth the cost because God will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You give us this kind of trust, that we might trust Your promises, that we might trust Your Word. For those of us in this room that are uh, indeed facing a season of suffering, a season of trouble, I ask that You give us the grace to trust in You. The trust that Your your mind is far higher than our mind. Your ways are far greater than our ways. And for those who are in a season of plenty, I ask that You guard them, keep them from falling into believing that their happiness can be found in their things. Let us be a people that trusts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.